worship you in this place right now, Jesus. That you would have all the glory and all the honor. Our hearts overflow with thanks to you. Be lifted high. We are an altar of broken stones. But you delight in the offering. You have the heavens to call your own, but you abide in the song we sing. Ten thousand angels surround your throne to bring you praise that will never cease. But hallelujah. From here below It's still your favorite melody Always sing Hallelujah 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 We sing Hallelujah Hallelujah The fire that once burned bright Becoming ember my eyes can see I will remember your sacrifice Come on. I will abide in your love for me Come on. We sing hallelujah, hallelujah Before your name, 
But we will not wait until it does Right now For here and now shall your kingdom reign My Jesus in this place Be enthroned Jesus in this place In our grace We choose to lift you up We say in uh, the book of Isaiah, almost a thousand years before the birth of Jesus, that prophesies about him, and it says these things. The government will rest upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of what? The Prince of Peace. Father, we invite the peace of your kingdom into our hearts. Peace over our minds and our souls. Peace in our homes. Peace when we go out and peace when we come in. Peace between us and others and peace between us and most importantly you. Thank you for Jesus. We recognize him. It's all about him today. And we thank you for your faithfulness and your goodness to us. He is our King, our Lord, and our Prince. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you agree, amen. You can be seated. I'm glad that you're here today. I want to wish all of you a very Merry Christmas. I tell my family um, this way. I don't pray it's the best Christmas you've ever had. I pray it's the best Christmas yet. That way each one is a little bit better is our hope. 
want to recognize our visitors here today. We're glad that you're here. It's a joy for us to have you with us uh, this weekend. Uh, I've got a question for you to begin and to jump in. And just this simple, it can be rhetorical, or if you want to answer out loud, you can do it. But have you ever been at a place in your life where you felt like you lost hope? Maybe, um, maybe hope in a person. For those of you who have ever suffered a divorce, uh, a betrayal, someone that said you can trust me and then you found out you couldn't, maybe you find the idea of losing hope in someone to be a reality. Uh, have you ever lost hope in an institution? You know, today, not to be uh, ugly in my bluntness, but many people today dealing with an issue with the Catholic Church have lost faith in an institution right now, haven't they? Something they thought they could trust in and found not so much in some ways. Uh, how about maybe um, losing hope in the idea of a situation? Maybe something that you hoped would go your way, would work out the right way. Something that maybe you put a lot of hope in. And then you found it didn't go the right way and you felt like the hope got sucked out of you. You know what I know about hope is this. Hope is just a four-letter word, but it's probably the most powerful thing in the world that we have to give us a bridge to the future. People that feel like they have hope go forward, and people that feel like they don't seem to get stuck. You ever felt like maybe you lose hope in life? Just the things that you deal with on an ongoing basis, maybe health, um, maybe things that you see going on in our world today or even in our country. Uh, maybe most critical one, have you ever lost hope in yourself? Sometimes you just think that you're able to do everything and then you find out all of a sudden that you can't do everything and you can become so disappointed in yourself. It's easy to lose hope. Hope is probably the most important thing that we have giving us a bridge to the future. In my notes, I wrote it this way. Hope is fuel for a better tomorrow. Without hope, we don't tend to head that direction. And with hope, all things become possible. The way that God works in our life is not to come in and remove trouble. It's to give us hope so that we overcome trouble. The Bible says that we're more than conquerors, that we're well able. And if you think about how that works, God doesn't come and just simply wipe away all the stuff in front of you. He gives you hope so that you can get through the stuff in front of you. Hope is so powerful. I'm not talking about false hope or hype. I'm talking about the hope that comes through Jesus. Uh, hope and future are actually synonymous with each other. A familiar scripture for those who know the Bible, Jeremiah 29, 11, we quote this all the time. I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for good and not for evil to bring you a hope and what? A future. Hope and the future are synonymous with each other. They go hand in hand. And people who don't feel like they have a future are missing hope. Hope is so powerful. Hope in where we're going to go and hope in what we're going to do and hope in the way that things are going to turn out. And what's the difference between a wish and a hope or hype and a hope? It's the real hope that Jesus gives us. I think that Christmas is a reason to hope. I think that Jesus is the proof that God wants us to hope. I think that if you'll open your heart for a few minutes and listen to this message, I might be able to convince you that God has hope for you. Hope for your situation. Hope for your family. Hope for your future. 
What is it about hope that's so powerful? When I was studying for the message, I was looking up different ideas and different trails and different things, and I found this really cool article. It was just called Three Psychiatrists. For those of you who in school had any Psychology 101 class, you'll probably recognize a couple of these names. But in their day, they were the three men who really were writing the book on how the brain works, how the heart functions, and what motivates us in life. Uh, Two of them were super famous, one a household name, and one never got to be known quite as well, but he figured out what real hope is. And the story goes this way, true story. Uh, In Vienna, the period leading up to World War II, there were three Jewish psychiatrists. Two were very learned, and they were actually masters in their field, and one was a young apprentice learning from the two mentors. The first master is a man named Sigmund Freud. We all recognize that name. Freud studied and spent years trying to figure out the motivation of a person's heart. What is it that causes them to move forward, to embrace life, to do well, to be healthy? And he made a tragic mistake in what he thought was the motivating factor. He spent years studying people, striving to understand, using limited testing and counseling to figure it out. He reached this faulty conclusion that most of us, the most basic drive in all of us, at that primal level, the thing that motivates us is pleasure. That was his idea. It was called the pleasure principle, for those who remember it in school. And his theory was just simply this, that the thing that causes a person to move forward into the future is the idea that if there's pleasure in it, they'll move forward. Now that works if you don't really take a hard look at life. But you know in life that it's not always easy and it's not always fun. And so what is it that when life happens to you that allows you to go forward? Because life's not always pleasurable. Can I say that over here? Life's not always pleasurable. And so if pleasure is the motivating factor and it's not pleasurable, then what is it that motivates a person forward? That alone should tell us that his thinking was faulty because the pleasure principle is not the motivating factor of a man's or woman's heart. Pleasure is important. You were created to experience pleasure, but pleasure is not the end-all, be-all of everything in life. He made a tragic mistake predicting that pleasure in and of itself was the reason that people have hope. Uh, The second guy, not as well-known, but if you are a psychiatrist, a psychologist, if you play one in your family, you might know <laughs> this name. His name was Alfred Adler. Not as famous, but well-known in his day and as a father of psychology. He too spent years studying human behavior. His study led him to a thesis also. He disagreed with Freud. He came up and was convinced that the bottom line explanation for human behavior was power. That if a person was offered enough power, that would motivate their life to the future. Again, in a limited idea, it's true. Because if you feel powerless and somebody gives you power, it is exciting. But the truth of the matter is, life's not always in a position where you're in control. Anybody married? So you... How about anybody you have kids? (laughs) Power in and of itself is a motivating factor, but not the common denominator issue of what motivates humanity. The third guy is a name that you will not recognize. He was a little younger than Adler and Freud. They were his 
his mentors. He had styled himself to study under them and after them, but World War II happened. And the fact that the three of them were Jewish living in Europe made it difficult for them. But the third guy, because he was not known, faced a reality that the other two did not. He was a young and upcoming psychiatrist by the name of Viktor Frankl. He had hoped to follow in the footsteps of his mentors, but before his career could gain any momentum, World War II happened. The Nazis invaded, and it became dangerous for Jews. Freud and Adler, because they were well-known, were able to escape. But Frankel was not so lucky. He was arrested and thrown into a Nazi concentration camp for four years. Now, his experiment was completely different than theirs because they had dealt with life without it being that difficult, but now he is dealing with the reality of how do you make it through when everything is taken away? How do you make it through when you have no control? How do you make it through when you have no power? How do you make it through when you don't even get to choose if you live or die? I mean, his experimentation became completely different. And so he took all of their study, but applied it in his circumstance, and he found out very quickly that it wasn't pleasure because there was no pleasure in a concentration camp. And it wasn't power because no one was allowed to have power. It was taken from them. And yet, there were people who survived in the most brutal, god-awful, hell-on-earth conditions, and many who didn't. His observation was this. The ones that you think would survive were not necessarily the ones who did. The big strong ones, the ones who seemed to be so positive and so, so strong, their natural strength was not enough to get them through the concentration camp. And the ones who you would predict would not make it, the weak, sometimes would be the ones who would survive in the most insurmountable odds because something inside of them was incredible. And as he had this I guess, for lack of a better word, as he had this experiment in front of him, he was able to deduce this truth, and this is what he came up with. He reflected on the theories of his mentor, Freud's pleasure principle. He realized that men in the camp knew only pain, suffering, and degradation. Pleasure was not a word in their vocabulary, so it couldn't be pleasure that kept them going through the difficult times. Adler's theory about power being the most basic human need and motivating factor, that didn't fare well either. Frankel and his fellow Jews were completely powerless during their time in the concentration camps. Each day they stared down the barrel of a loaded gun, they were treated like animals, and they felt the jackboots of the Nazis on the back of their heads. They had no power and no prospect of gaining any power. Frankel came up with his own theory that when put to the test became quite accurate. The difference between those who survived and those who perished was one word, hope. The ones who had hope. Hope that someday I'll get out of here. Someday my life will be different. Someday God will hear my prayer. Someday when they had hope, it allowed them to make it through the most difficult of circumstances where pleasure and where power were absolutely not even an issue. Despite everything going on around them, they believed that one day their lives would be meaningful, purposeful. The basic human drive, he found out, the thing that gives us value is the ability to live with a sense of hope. Not pleasure, not power, but hope. It's a powerful thought and a powerful concept. And the reason that I say I think Christmas is the proof that we can have hope, it's the idea that we have a reason to have hope, it's because of what the Bible tells us. Matthew chapter 1, 
Matthew and Luke both tell great stories about the birth of Jesus. Luke was a doctor by trade. He took excellent notes. He had a wonderful vocabulary. And so when he writes about the Christmas story, it's the one that Linus quotes. <laughs> We're victims of culture, yes or no? You all knew without me saying. But Matthew's is less well-known because Matthew was more of a matter-of-fact, bottom-line, cut-all-the-flowery-speech out of it. But I like his interpretation of the birth of Jesus. And here's the two reasons that we have hope. Matthew 1, these five verses, 18 through 23. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged in marriage to a man named Joseph. But before they could be married, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and was unwilling to disgrace her publicly. He had resolved to divorce her quietly. But after he had pondered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to embrace Mary as your wife. For the one conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah. Remember, a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. Behold, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him, do you remember the name? Emmanuel, which means God with us. Let me give you one of the greatest reasons you can have hope is because God is with us. He is not against us. He's not on the other side of the universe, mindlessly allowing things just to simply plod and work their way out. God never asked us to come to him. God realized that we couldn't come to him, so he made the journey to us. You value something by the price someone's willing to pay for it. The ultimate price was paid so that God could be close to us. God so loved that he gave the ultimate price. When you want to know what something's worth, it's not what it says in the paper, and it's not what someone else tells you. It's what someone is actually willing to pay. What was paid for you? The highest price ever. Jesus was given for your peace and for your hope. Hope. The hope of God with us. When you love someone, see if this isn't true. When you love someone, you want to be with them. Do you agree with that statement? To understand spiritual theology, we need to put it in human understanding. Otherwise, it's high-sounding words, but it's not practical. If you go out of here and quote me, but you don't know what it means, it doesn't help you. Do you agree? So to put something that is so deep that God would leave heaven and come near to us, how do you understand that? Yeah, you can quote it, you can say it, but unless it gets in your heart, if it doesn't go from here to here, it doesn't matter. It's got to get here. So we've got to put it in terms that the mind can embrace. So when I say, when you love someone, you want to be with them, it puts the idea of God being close to us in a terminology that we can understand. Uh, Christmas Eve, 1982. I look around and I realize some of you weren't born then. <laughs> some are like, was that when the dinosaurs were still? Yeah. Um, and some of you didn't live in Colorado, but if you were here, Christmas Eve, 1982, we had what? Ooh, many of you lived here. Huge blizzard. Massive blizzard. Uh, different than 
a normal type of snowstorm, not eight inches or 12 inches. How about this? It snowed for a straight 30 hours and it averaged two inches an hour. When it passed 28 inches, I decided I better get my car home from my girlfriend's house. My girlfriend is the one that I married. So we were engaged to be married and I was hanging out with them for Christmas and the snow was coming down like crazy. And my car, a 1976 Ford LTD, 52 feet long and rear wheel drive with bad tires. You know the car that can't make it up the hill? That was my car. And I had waited till it had snowed way too late because I didn't want to leave her. But I jumped in the car and said, I got to get this car home. So I took off. Maybe I got a half mile and I got stuck. So I went back to her house and I thought, oh, cha-ching. <laughs> I told her dad, I said, hey, I can't make it home. I need to spend the night. And he said, I'll take you. <laughs> So in a blinding 30-inch snowstorm, we're the only ones on the road. He's driving me home. He's going to make sure I get there. Drops me off at my house. Somehow he makes it back to his house. He got stuck. His car got stuck. I'm surprised they let us get married, to be honest with you. It snowed, and it snowed, and it snowed, and I wanted to be with her so bad. And the next day, for those who remember, the city was paralyzed. It was so bad. It got so cold. It was one of those ones where the ruts turned to ice and you're high centered the minute you go out of your driveway. You couldn't go anyplace. And I was stuck. And 24 hours went by and I couldn't stand anymore and I decided to walk the four miles back to her house. That's okay if you're 6'4", but if you're 5'6". <laughs> Some guy asked me, was it up to your waist? <laughs> So I take off in this, this unbelievable amount of snow to make my way back to her house. And it took me forever and my feet hurt so bad. And I was so cold, so wet. But man, I was so glad to see her. I would have paid any price to have been with the one that I love. I only put it in those terms. I know they're kind of sappy, but our minds have to be able to wrap around the understanding. God went the ultimate distance to show you that he loves you. The Bible says that he didn't pay attention to how embarrassing and how great he had it. He was willing to forsake everything in order to come and be close to you. And sometimes we get that theology and we can quote it, but we don't get it in our heart. And if you don't get it in your heart, it has no meaning to you. It doesn't pay at all to be smart without your heart engaged. You need your brain and your heart's. You need wisdom and passion. God doesn't call us just to have understanding. He calls us to be passionate about him in the understanding. When the Bible says that he came close, Emmanuel, God with us, he doesn't want us just to know some Greek definition of a word. He wants us to understand the passion that he felt for us. We couldn't help ourselves. We couldn't get to him. And what broke the fellowship in the first place was us. I told the other service before you that God's original intention for creation, as simplistic as this is, listen, he created you for this purpose more than anything else. He created you to be known by him and to know him. This is what the Bible says. In the Garden of Eden, when God created the man and the woman, he would come in the cool of the day just to walk with them, hang out with them, and talk to him. What you do 
Where you live, how much money you make, where you vacation, who you married, that's not your primary thing in life. Those are things that flow from this, that you are so valuable to God that he created you for nothing more except to love you and be loved by you. And when we lose that meaning and that understanding, it takes away all the power of living. If you get that right, that God loves me and that God is for me and that God has chosen me, if you get this right, you can live this way so powerfully. But if you go this way and you mess this up, it puts everything out of priority. We try to find meaning so much so from what we do, what we make, where we go, who we are, our title, our prestige or trying to get those things, we find that as the meaning of life, and it's so easy today to get it backwards. God doesn't say those things are wrong, but he says put them in the right priority. Know me first, and those things make sense, and they won't control you. Mess this up, and those things become everything you're trying to find meaning in. And they're hopeless. When you love someone, you want to give to them. Not just be with them, but give to them. How many of you have grandchildren? Let me see. Uh, tell me yes or no, you're spending a lot of money. <laughs> Way more than you spend on your kids. We have a little plaque in our kitchen. Uh, so we've got 10 grandkids now. 10. Christmas has become, we're taking out a second mortgage almost, man. It's a, it's a crazy deal. We have a little plaque in our kitchen that says this. If we'd have known how fun grandkids were, we would have had them first. We love it. We can't wait. <laughs> it's so joyful and it's so fun. It's such a great time. When you love someone, you want to give to them. God so loved that he... It's the principle of understanding the passion the Father feels for his. To relate to God that way. Of all the names he could reveal himself by, he reveals it all of his character, all of his nature, all of his power in one word. Abba or Daddy Father. You can know him as all-powerful, as everywhere at once, as the smartest, as, as whatever, the biggest whatever. But the way to know him is to know him as Father. Christmas really is the proof that we have a reason to hope because God is with us. He's for us and he loves us. The second one simply is this. He's Emmanuel, but he's also in that scripture in Matthew called Christ, the anointed one. And here's the truth of the matter. It's great that he came to be with us, but that's only half the journey. He came to live in us too. And while God came to earth for every person that's ever lived today, yesterday, and tomorrow, it's only actually applied as you open the door to your heart and invite him in. These are Jesus' words in the book of Revelation. Behold, I stand at the door of your heart and I knock. If anyone hears me knocking and opens the door and invites me in, I will come in and we will fellowship, or in other words, we'll be together. While he came to be near us, it's only half the journey. He came to live in us. I'm not talking about religion. I'm not talking about church. I'm not talking about trying harder, doing better, or getting your life going. Uh, God's not a self-help guru. He didn't come to make things a little better. He didn't come to try to bring some order to chaos. He came for the ultimate issue of, I'll take your death and give you my life 
if you'll accept my invitation. So let me be direct. How are you doing with that invitation? How's your hope? How's your relationship? Where are you at with God? Colossians 1.27 says, This is the secret. Christ lives in you, the hope of glory. The hope that we have is that Jesus doesn't just come near us, but that he wants to live in us. Again, when I was studying, I found this really sweet story about twins. And because I have twins, it's a great illustration. Now, it's not my twins, but listen to this idea right here. There were two identical twins. They were alike in every way but one. One was a hope-filled optimist who only ever saw the bright side of life. That's who I married. The other was a dark pessimist who only ever saw the downside in every situation. That's who she married. (laughs) The parents were so worried about the extremes of optimism and pessimism that they saw in their boys that they took them to the doctor. And he suggested a plan. On their next birthday, give the pessimist a shiny new bike. But give the optimist a pile of manure. It seemed a fairly extreme thing to do, huh? After all, the parents had always treated their boys equally. But in this instance, they decided to try the doctor's advice. So when the twins' birthday came around, they gave the pessimist the most expensive, top-of-the-range, incredible racing bike that a child has ever owned. When the pessimist saw the bike, his first words were this, I'll probably crash and break my leg. To the optimist, they gave a carefully wrapped box of manure. He opened it, looked puzzled for a moment, and then shouted, Woohoo! I got a horse! (laughs) It's funny, and we laugh, but it's only to open your heart. And here's the reason I use that. The way that you see what I'm talking about right now is the complete possibility of whether or not you'll move forward in this message. If this is nothing more than, Pastor, if you knew my situation, if you weren't such a positive person, if you knew what was really going on, Pastor, all those things, that's, that's great for you. I'm glad you found your way. But that doesn't really work in the real world. And it won't work for you. But if your heart is simply that you can have hope, That you can believe that what's happening in life, man, is not some plan against you. It's not some proof that the enemy is winning in your life. If you want to know what all the stuff is about, it's the proof that you have an enemy. But you also have a Savior who loves you and promises this. All things work together for good to them that know and love the Lord and are called according to His purpose. That God takes what was meant for evil and uses it for good. And what do you believe? Because it's as simple as that right there. We complicate it. The enemy makes things seem so incredibly difficult that we'll never get out of it. And God invites us to this one thing. Will you hope in me? Because what's impossible with man is possible with God. And you go, you're just an optimist. No, I'm a realist who has found that there's no hope in the other stuff. And there's only hope in Christ. And so I'll boldly stand before you and I'm not trying to appeal to you on some emotional thing where I twist your heart and it's just hype. I'm trying to give you the truth right now. I'm trying to marry your brain and your heart together that God offers you hope today. It's not found in religion. It's certainly not found in church. 
It's not found in a philosophy. It's not found in trying to do better. It's not found in trying to work harder. It's found in surrender to him. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and anyone who hears me knocking, if you'll open the door and invite me in, I will come in and we will fellowship together. It's the putting back of the original intention of why you exist on this earth in the first place. Did you just hear me? It's why you exist. It's why you're here. It's not biological. It's not accidental. It's not even if you had great parents who planned it. It's that God willed you into existence because he wants you to know him. And he wants to be known by you. Where are you at with hope? Where's your hope? I'll give you this last scripture and I'm done. John 1, 12. To all who receive him and those who believe in his name. Emmanuel, Jesus. To those who receive him and believe him, who invite him in. He gave the right to become children of God. If there was ever a reason to be hopeful, it's that right there. You have a future and you have a hope if you have Jesus. He's not a respecter of persons. He treats all of us equally and loves us all the same. Maximum. Where are you at with that? I get stuff happens. I get life takes over. I think it was the theologian John Lennon. who said life is what happens while you're busy making plans. I know life happens. I know sometimes it's unfair. I know it can beat you down and kick hope out of you. You know what God wants? For you to hope in Him. Not hope in life. Not hope in stuff. Not even hope in a person. All of those inside of hope for Him are okay, but if you make that the reason that you're trying to have hope, you'll be so disappointed. Hope in Him. He offers you hope. It really is as simple as that. And it really is as truthful as that. If you need hope today, God offers it. Do you need hope? In my mind, when I prepared it, I just saw maybe two people who would respond to this message. So I'm going to pray. And I, I want to say this. Um, slip me in the eye real quick. I'm going to ask you to respond, but I'm not going to make you stand. And I'm not going to point you out. And I'm not going to send you someplace. But I do believe I'm trying to teach and call right now on behalf of God. And it requires a response if you want to. So if what I say when I pray is for you and you need it, respond to God. It's an act of hope. Father... What a joy it is for me to be able to teach your people. God, I have such hope when I talk about you. Such hope when I think about what you've done for us and what you want to do for us. Hope when I think about the future, not just here on earth, but eternity. Hope that all things will work together for good to those who know you and are called according to your purpose. Hope that what the enemy is trying to do for evil, that God can win and cause it for good. Hope that when we ask you for hope, you give it to us. Not hype, hope. Here's 
the two people that I saw. If you're here and you don't have hope, if you're listening to me in person or maybe you catch this streaming or at work or while you're walking, if you don't have hope, if you don't feel like there's a future, if you feel like it's been kicked out of you, God offers you hope. It's in a relationship with Christ. I can't say it any more clearly. Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears me knocking and they'll open the door and invite me in, I will come in. And we'll fellowship or we'll be together. I'm not asking you if you need religion. I'm not asking you to start going to church. I'm not asking you to reform or try harder or do better. I'm asking you if you want the hope that comes from a relationship with Christ. Real hope. If that's you and you say, Pastor, please remember me when you pray today. Because I want the hope that you're talking about. I need a relationship with God. And Pastor, I just, I can feel him knocking on my heart. There's just no other way to say that. If that's you, and you just say, Pastor, pray for me. Just slip your hand up right now. Say, I need that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can put them right back down. I meant what I said. The other category would just be this. So maybe you're in another place in that you've opened your heart. And you're in fellowship with Christ. And he's your Lord and you love him. But you just find right now that for whatever, maybe it was circumstances or a person or yourself, an institution. Maybe I didn't even mention it. And suddenly, somehow you find yourself having your hope challenged right now. You feel like it's being squeezed out of you. You're trying hard, but trying's not where it's at. Jesus doesn't encourage us to try harder. He invites us to come to him. All who are weary, come to me and I'll give you rest. And the exchange will happen. I'll give you my life and you give me your burdens. And if that is where you're at right now, and you say, Pastor, I know him, but man, my hope is being challenged, and I feel like I'm being beaten right now, and I just need God to renew my hope. God is not just a discoverer of hope. He's the recover of hope. And if you say, Pastor, pray for me, because that's where I'm at. Slip your hand up. Just respond to him right now. Use it as a place to say, I need hope. That's all. I need hope. You can put them back down. So, Father, for these two responses, first and foremost, for those who are calling on your name right now, who are saying, I need a relationship with God, do what you do so well. Come into our lives, God. Father, we make room for you right now. Even if you're like, I don't understand theology, understand this, God loves you and embraces you. 
He wants to come into your life. Just tell him yes. It's the point of all beginning. And for those who, Father, have followed you, have held on and remained faithful, but they find themselves being challenged right now. The Bible uses the word tempted. Trials and tests. It uses the word fiery. Meaning that it can hurt. And it feels intense. And if that's where you are, God loves you. And his promises are not null and void or without effect. It just simply means you have an enemy who's trying to hinder you. And Jesus never promises that if you let me in your life, I'll get rid of all your problems. In fact, he says this, in this world, you'll have trouble, but fear not, I've overcome the world. That's hope. So I just pray for you as you're going through that, that you're not under it, that you're not succumbing to it, and that it's not going to win, and it's not going to dictate or mark your future. Your future is that you are well able. You're an overcomer in Christ. You have a hope and a future. That's God's plans and purpose for you. I pray encouragement to you. I pray this Christmas, instead of being something that lets you down, you would find the joy in the simplicity of believing it's just the time we celebrate that God loves us so much. Make that a reality to so many, God. And I thank you for hearing our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen. Merry Christmas.